Hey, grace and peace to you all today. We are talking about Jesus and some of the people who didn't believe he was anything but a con man and why that was. At least that's what we're going to get into today, but first, a very brief introduction. I am Captain Roger of the Salvation Army, currently based in Grass Valley, California, and this is our online worship and study. If you come to our Sunday morning church meeting, this is the topic we're planning to discuss there, but we post the main teaching online each week so that everyone will get a chance to hear and participate in God's Word as we wrestle with what it means and how we could use it in our own lives. Now, we have been working through Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matt was one of the 12 key disciples of Jesus. He was part of that inner circle who was responsible to carry the message out to the rest of the disciples and to the world around them. Now, Matt believed that Jesus was more than just a great teacher. He thought Jesus was also this long-promised Messiah that God had said he would send to rescue his people. Matt also thought that Jesus was in some way also God, not just the agent of God, but also actually God. And in his biography, he has done everything he can to tell the story in a way that shows us why he believed these things. He's also told us about a number of people who absolutely did not believe this stuff, which we will hear more about in just a moment. We're up to the end of chapter 13 in the book of Matthew, the uh, first book of the Christian scriptures, by the way. The Christian scriptures are also called the New Testament, so if you're looking for it, it's the first book of the New Testament, so it's about 75, maybe 80% of the way into your Bible, if you've got a complete one. We're going to start today at verse 53, which is going to transition us from the story of Jesus' teaching to the skepticism and anger of the folks who didn't like what it was he had to say. Matthew, chapter 13, starting at verse 53. And it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And he came to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue, so that they were amazed. And they said, From where did this man get this wisdom and these miracles? Is not this one the son of the carpenter? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, and Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? From where then did this man get all of these things? And they were offended by him. But let's hit some history here. Uh, Jesus, he grew up in Nazareth. That was a backwater town in northern Israel in the region of Galilee. It was kind of a, a small nondescript village that other small nondescript towns would make fun of. Back in the first days of his ministry, Jesus called a, a guy named Philip to come follow him. And Philip went to his buddy Nathaniel, and he's like, bro, we found the guy. This is the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. To which we're told that Nathaniel replied, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But once he met and listened to Jesus, Nathaniel was right there following him, just like Philip and so many others did, even though Jesus seemed to be from... Yeah, well, the middle of nowhere, essentially. Now, Jesus had spent a couple of years traveling around Israel, sharing his amazing teaching about the kingdom of God and how to live in it, bringing about miraculous healing for people with life-changing injuries and chronic diseases. He even had brought the dead back to life. And there were several times where he even seemed to confront people who were possessed by supernatural entities, and he would free them from that demonic control. 
Jesus' reputation had grown and spread from being a wilderness preacher to being something more, something that could only have come from God. And the people had begun to whisper, this is the one we've been waiting for. It's the Messiah. And they've started to match up these things that Jesus did with the signs God had promised would herald the arrival of that Savior. And they started to say, this is the guy. Now, this wasn't universally accepted. There were some among the religious elite who found themselves threatened by the things that Jesus said and did. They didn't care for the way that he interpreted some of the scripture passages he taught about. They didn't like that he treated everyone as if they were on the same social level. They didn't like how his teaching subtly shifted power away from their leadership. And they tried to fight against Jesus like they did when they argued with each other. They asked questions in a way in which they thought would elicit answers that would uh, reinforce their position or lead to them being able to condemn this young upstart as a heretic and uh, say that that heretic was just there to lead people away from God. But Jesus answered their questions and their attacks on him ended up just bringing shame on themselves instead. And frustrated, these leaders began to level wild insults at him, trying to tear him down or start rumors that he was the devil. And their poison spread out to some. In fact, even his own family felt the need to come and try to bring him home because they were embarrassed Jesus was causing such an upheaval. But Jesus kept teaching. But as he was teaching, he started to use more stories, which the people loved to hear, even when he didn't always explain them. And as they puzzled out his meanings, they found themselves blessed by the things that Jesus said, while those who had decided they would be his enemies just got angrier, not liking what they understood and refusing to understand the stuff they didn't want to think about. <laughs> We've all been there, right? Now, through it all, Jesus kept moving. He was visiting place after place, sharing the news that the kingdom of God was at hand and... He was healing those who came to him. And then, for the first time since when he had just started, he came home. And he went to church that week, and he began to teach these amazing things. And some people came to him, and they were healed. And the response of those there, the people who had known him and his family their whole lives, the ones who you would think would have been his proudest followers and supporters, their, their response to this kind of went like this. Who does he think he is? This is the carpenter's kid. We know Jesus, so whatever it is he's trying to do here, we're not buying it. Well, why not? Remember what the Pharisees' biggest problem with Jesus' teaching was? They needed to set aside their own understanding of things in order to embrace God's understanding. And they didn't want to do it. Their pride built an obstacle that they weren't willing to get past, even when what was on the other side was a place in the kingdom of God. So what did the people of Nazareth understand? Well, look, look what happened. Verse uh, 57 says, they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he didn't do very many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Yeah, so what did the Nazarenes understand? Well, they understood that Mary was the mother of Jesus. And they remembered that there was a time when she was engaged to Joseph, 
and she turned up pregnant before the final wedding took place. Joseph stepped up and all, but the people remembered that this is the family in which questionable things have happened in the past. They understood that Jesus has grown up with four brothers and at least two sisters. We're not told how many, but we are told that it is sisters, plural. And, and Joseph was a carpenter, which could mean anything and everything from basic woodwork to stone cutting. He, he was a construction worker and a small town craftsman. He probably spent a bunch of his children's youth working in the nearby town of Sepphoris as part of one of the teams working on rebuilding it for King Herod after it had been destroyed in a revolt when he had taken power, uh, he being King Herod had taken power, not Joseph. Uh, Jesus, as the oldest son, he would have been responsible to help his father and learn that trade from him, as would one or all of the other brothers. In Mark's version of this same story, he mentions that the people actually called Jesus the carpenter. And that was part of the problem. To them, he's the carpenter. What kind of spiritual insight are they going to get from him? I mean, I don't call a plumber to make pizza. I don't ask a zookeeper to explain human decision-making processes. I don't call in a movie star to explain macroeconomics. Why would I want to have a carpenter come explain the kingdom of God to me? So when Jesus gets to town, he teaches amazing things and he performs miracles of healing. But all the people can really see is that this is Jesus. He was born under a cloud, he was raised to be a carpenter, and he's from Nazareth. Can anything good ever come from Nazareth? And the people from Nazareth say, no, it can't. And they get offended that Jesus is even there. And let me point out, Matthew has told us the teaching was amazing. The people were amazed at the wisdom of what Jesus said. He's also told us miracles were performed there. I, mean, I know at the end it says he didn't do very many, but not only were people amazed at Jesus' wisdom, they were astounded at his miraculous powers. The problem isn't that they didn't hear his teaching, and it's not that they didn't see his signs. They heard, they saw, but then they were like, yeah, but this is Jesus we're talking about. And they ignored what it meant that he was teaching and, and performing these works. They ignored that in favor of getting upset by it. So, yeah, I guess he didn't do many miracles here, at least not as many as he did in some other towns, because, you know what, you can't help people who don't want help. You can't force people to understand things that they have decided not to. You can't make them see when they have covered their eyes. Selfishness blinds people to God's reality. Look what happened to John. That's the next thing that Matthew tells us about. Uh, look at the next verse here. At, at that time, this is the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 14. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Because, you know, everyone knew that John was a prophet. They expected miracles from him. And this might seem a leap, because Jesus and John were about the same age. But Herod, he's got this guilty conscience about John. Matthew fills those details in for us next. Look at verse 3. It says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now, we went over some of this story a few weeks ago when we talked about John being in prison and him uh, reaching out to Jesus and all that. 
Um, John had made a point of letting Herod know that his incestuous and illegal relationship with his brother's wife, who happened to be their niece, by the way, was way out of line. Leaders become the examples that their people follow, so it is doubly important that they be humble and law-abiding in all things. And Herod, he was leading people away from God and away from honorable behavior altogether. And John let him know it. And that wasn't making him very popular with the leadership, right? Yeah, so Herod, he throws John in prison and he leaves him there to rot. Why? Well, because Herod was a selfish snot who was set on doing things his way instead of listening to what God had to say. But he knew that John was a prophet, or at least that the people thought he was, and so he was afraid to just get rid of this Galilean preacher. So he locked him away and he left him there. But Herod wasn't the only one who didn't want John going around shining a light on this shameful marriage. Herodias, his wife, also wanted to have John silenced. The verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now, I've heard preachers go on about what kind of dance this must have been to get Herod worked up enough to make such a sweeping promise, but this isn't that kind of thing, right? There's no poles involved here, as it were. The story is told in a very straightforward way in a culture where they spoke pretty graphically about sexuality. So this dance is really just what it sounds like. It's just a, a performance. Besides, when you read this story in the original Greek that it was written in, you can tell we're talking about a girl who's maybe 11 or 12. Herod's just really impressed with her dance. And like a benevolent father, or in this case, stepfather, he offers to reward her. He doesn't realize that her mother has primed her to ask for what she wanted instead of what the girl might ordinarily have asked for. I mean, Herod, I'm sure he's thinking, oh, I'm going to have to get her a pony, you know. But she's like, oh, don't bring me John's head. And verse 9 says, the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. <clears throat> I once told someone that if they asked me to, I would do something for them, even though I knew that thing was very, very wrong. Very, very wrong. But I figured they would never ask. It would be a destructive thing. It would lead to heartache and disaster on several other fronts. It would, it would change our lives for the worse. There was no way they were ever going to ask me to do what I said that I would do. So then they asked. Crap. I felt trapped. After all, I'd given my, my word, right? I'd made this bold declaration, and I didn't want to let this person down, and I didn't want to look like I was a liar, and I didn't want... I, I didn't... I didn't want... I, you know what the truth is? The truth is that I had just decided what I wanted, and what I wanted was what I wanted, and I didn't want to pay a price for it, and I didn't want to face any consequences for it. I just decided that my pride was all that mattered. So I was going to go ahead and do what that person asked, because that fed my pride. Thank God that he intervened. 
Thank God he kept me from making the biggest mistake of my life any worse than I had already made it. My pride was going to lead me to my doom, but God redirected my steps through a number of outside circumstances and kept me from it. And it's been a long, long time since this happened, but it remains in my, in my thoughts as a lighthouse that warns me away from this reef of pride and selfishness. I can't say that I'm not still prone to behave foolishly sometimes, because you know, we, we do, sadly. But at least so far, the memory of this event has been enough to keep me away from anything that might lead me into being in that situation again. Harry didn't have that. Or, or maybe it was just that it didn't matter. Maybe his pride was so much of an obstacle that nothing was going to be able to overcome it except his own decision to set it aside. That, that's the secret to defeating foolish pride, by the way. You can always choose to set it aside and listen to the voices around you. Listen to your conscience. Listen to the Spirit of God as it directs you to choose God's life over selfishness. As it directs you to choose life over death. Herod chose death. In this case, John's physical life was worth less to Herod than the mild embarrassment of him having to tell his daughter and his guests that he wasn't going to kill God's prophet just because she'd managed to pull off some cool ballet moves. So, Herod sent his men to the prison beneath his palace, and they came back with John's head on a platter, which was then presented to this little girl who brought it to her mother. The things we do to our kids. The things we do to each other. God, forgive us for our foolish pride and how we allow it to block us from following you. How we refuse to acknowledge that others are just as important as we are. That they're people with flesh and blood and feelings and complicated backstories just like us. Verse 12 says, John's disciples came and they took his body and they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus... That trip he took through Nazareth might just have been part of what Jesus did next, which is to, to head out into the wilderness. Maybe he was going out to grieve, maybe to clear his head. Maybe as the next step towards what he needed to do. Maybe all of that and other reasons, too. I mean, it doesn't really give us his motivations in the text. Matthew wants us to know about these events. He wants us to understand that the people were rejecting the message of God that they were ignoring his prophet and his savior, that they were allowing their pride to blind them to God's reality, and that they were hanging that decision on things that were incidental to what they could have seen and heard if they'd just been willing to. What if they'd listened to the words of Jesus instead of refusing to hear him because of their perception of who he was and where he'd come from? What if they'd seen the miracles and thought about what that meant instead of ignoring them and the other signs as if they somehow didn't matter or were just the kind of thing that happens all the time because they weren't? Yeah, if only, if only, if only, right? Yeah. But this rejection, it was expected too. In fact, it's one of the signs that God promised. Through the prophet Isaiah, speaking about the one who would come, God said this. He said he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Man, that, 
certainly fits what we are reading here. When God sent Ezekiel to share his wisdom with the people, uh, God gave him this instruction. He said, the people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And then whether they listen or fail to listen, for there are rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. They didn't really listen to him either, did they? And when he sent Jeremiah to call the people to follow him, God had him tell them this. Hey, from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I send you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention because they were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. So he's having Jeremiah say, look what you guys do every time I send you a prophet. You do terrible things. Because you are stubborn and blinding yourself to the reality. And then, I love this, God leans over to Jeremiah and he's like, Hey, when you tell them all this, they're not going to listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. What did people do to the prophets? Well, by and large, they ignored them and their calls to return to God. When they got upset because the truth began to worm its way into them, digging into their hardened hearts, then they killed those prophets. And I wouldn't want that guy to actually break through my facade. Heaven forbid they drill through my obstacle of pride. So really it's no surprise that the same thing is happening to John, to Jesus. But maybe some have heard, maybe some have seen. There are a few who listened and followed, right? So what about you? Are you willing to set aside the obstruction of your pride so that you can follow Jesus? Or will you allow selfishness to continue to blind you to God's truth? Hey, hey we can all do it. We can all block God. We can all let our pride grow up. That's a behavior we can unlearn. We can always choose to follow Jesus into God's kingdom rather than remaining stubbornly outside as if our desire is somehow going to change his decree. Well, I don't want to do that, Jesus, so you do it my way instead, right? Yeah, no. We like to think that somehow we matter more than the people around us. We like to think somehow that what we want matters more than what God wants, and if you're not sure how to get around that, let me give you a simple start in the right direction. Pray about it. Pray about it. You don't need to give some fancy speech. No matter what your words are, God hears your heart. Simply say, Lord, I've made myself blind. Help me to see. I've covered my ears. Help me to hear. Lead me on your path and show me when I do wrong. Help me to learn from your correction and establish a place in your kingdom. Teach me to follow Jesus instead of my own whims. In his name we pray. Amen. And I hope that you said that prayer with me. And I hope that you mean it. It's hard to set aside our pride. We're always so certain so certain about ourselves, so certain that we are somehow the center of everything. Make Jesus your center.
just choose. I'm going to do that from this point forward. Jesus is my center. It's not about me. It's not about my pride. It's not about what I want. It's not about the things I could have. It's about what, what is it that Jesus is asking me to do? How do I follow him? And then what you'll realize is that wherever you go, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. Jesus leads you where God is. God is already there. You have nothing to fear in the presence of God. So go with God. Grace and peace to all of you today.